Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hi, may I help you? Ms. Wolf, we're from the NSA. We've been reading all your emails, and we've got some questions for you now. Are you supposed to be doing that? You know, I asked about that on my first day. Apparently, it's okay for us to do. I forget why. Anyway, Ms. Wolf, aren't you the one who should be doing the explaining? I don't understand. Don't play games with us, Ms. Wolf. You've been getting emails from a Mrs. Agnes Savimbi in Nigeria. Her husband, a Nigerian prince, was poisoned. There's $3 million in a bank account, which you two are going to split as soon as you wire $5,000 to her. It's all there in the emails, Ms. Wolf, along with the friend who was robbed of her passport and money while on vacation in Uruguay and the plot to bring in bootleg Viagra from Canada so you can have a big and long-lasting... Stop. Are you are you asking about s- spam? <clears throat> no, thanks, ma'am. We stopped for lunch on the way over. I mean, email spam... I guess I'm not familiar with that. It's like when some rando sends the same email to a million people hoping to find just one who's so incredibly stupid and incompetent that they actually believe the whole... Maybe I should rephrase that. I get it, ma'am. Anyway, we never should have been snooping around in your email. I'll say. Uh, Just one last thing. We noticed you didn't forward that good luck letter to ten new recipients. It's our assessment that you're at risk now. One man broke the chain, and a piano fell out of an airplane and killed him. Get out! You know, these NSA guys don't seem as smart as the ones in the movie Snowden, which the nose is about to discuss. And now he can't stop thinking about how nice it would feel if Jimmy Fallon mussed up his hair. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, it it looked very nice on television anyway, though. I don't know it's an experience that most Americans can have. Well, let me tell you who's here, and then I'll tell you what we're up to. Uh, Here in the studio, we're in New Haven, first of all. We're so happy to be in New Haven. Uh, Here in New Haven, we have some New Haven people. Uh, Tom Breen is the film critic for the New Haven Independent. Uh, Lucy Gelman is the station manager for WNHH Community Radio in New Haven. Mercy Quay is the director of communications for the New Haven Public Schools and organizer of the Narrative Project. So you can see these are New Haven people. So what what we did was we all went to see, not together, we all went to see the movie Snowden. It's the new Oliver Stone film. We'll talk about that first. A little bit later, we're going to uh, speed date through three topics. Uh, we will probably be one of the very few public radio uh, shows to discuss the Brangel exit, even though, of course, a lot of America is discussing the breakup of Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. We will be doing that. We'll also be talking about um, an essay, a short essay by a New York Times writer uh, about the song Hallelujah and whether it has been drained this uh, Leonard Cohen ballad drained of its genius uh, and spunk just by endless uh, treacly repetitions of it uh, on TV shows and and things like that. Um, We'll also be talking about kind of a a multi-layered controversy involving, in fact, the mussing of Donald Trump's hair by Jimmy Fallon in kind of the quintessential lightweight, paper-thin softball interview. Uh, He's been upbraided by one of his comedy colleagues, Samantha Bee, uh, and then defended, well, no, not defended really, but sort of uh, put in a different frame, I guess, by the columnist Ross Douthat 
from the New York Times, who I might add is from New Haven. Um, all right, so that's the big plan for today, and that's who's on the show, and uh, we're going to get going here. So we'll begin with this movie. It's called Snowden, uh, and uh, it's about, of course, Edward Snowden. There's no way we can do spoilers. You don't have to worry about spoilers. You know what happens uh, if you have been attuned to things at all. So what we're going to hear here is um, a little clip from the movie. Uh, this is um, uh, Edward Snowden uh, not quite fully indoctrinated in the world of cyber hacking. Uh, the things that the government can do. He's finding this out uh, from a young guy who's been brought in to fully exercise at an overseas CIA location uh, all of the options that the CIA has uh, or the NSA has for looking at people's personal correspondence. So you'll hear him uh, uh, referring to Edward Snowden as Snow White. What I will be providing you and the fine gentleman of the Secret Service is a list of every threat made about the president since February 3rd, and a profile of every threat maker. And these are, like, existing targets? I think 99% are going to come from the bulk collection program, so upstream muscular tempora prism. Prism? You got a little Snow White in you. Which makes me feel like the witch bringing you a poison apple. Here. Exhibit A. Oakland resident Justin Pinsky posted on a message board, Romania has a storied history of executing their leaders. Couldn't they do us a solid and take out Bush? Oh, this looks juicy. This is from a G-chat. With the biggest python you've ever seen. Hmm. How is this all possible? Um, keyword selectors. Attack, take out Bush. So think of, it, think of it as a Google search, except instead of searching only what people make public, we're also looking at everything they don't. So emails, chats, SMS, whatever. Yeah, but which people? The whole kingdom, Snow White. Hugh, ominous Oliver Stone music. Um, all right. So um, what you don't see is uh, they're looking at a, at a screen. And so the second thing they see after the guy who's kind of talking about taking out Bush, uh, you see somebody, people having kind of a fairly graphic uh, sexual uh, conversation uh, online. It's all fair game uh, as far as the NSA is con concerned. So expectations are important. Lucy Gelman, uh, you went into this for some reason or other, thinking it probably wasn't going to be very good, um, which often gives you an advantage as an audience member. You, you, you have the chance of being delighted. How did things work out for you? It, you know, I, um, I was pleasantly surprised because I, so it had been pretty universally panned from some of the reviews I was reading. And so I went in thinking, oh, no, this is going to be a really bad, overly melodramatic two hours of my life or, or two hours and change, whatever it is. And, um, and in fact, I, I mean, it was not so bad and it was extremely entertaining, if nothing else. I, I mean, I, I found myself entertained. Do I think there was this uh, sense of, um, conspiracy theory that Oliver Stone is sort of known for high stakes drama. No, not not really. I wasn't on the edge of my seat at all. I'm, I'm a, I, I have to say I, I had a similar uh, experience except that I didn't know anything about the critical response to this movie. I had no idea what critics were saying about it. But but Tom, you know, what thing about Oliver Stone? Okay, so he made Born on the Fourth of July, JFK, Nixon. Uh, he made Wall Street. He made Platoon. Uh, he most recently made Savages, which is like a fairly terrible but 
strangely entertaining in a really stupid way movie. Um, and one thing that you forget because he's so purposeful and everything, his movies are all, yeah, I sort of agree with Lucy. These movies are at least really fun to look at, you know, like for a movie that's sort of about cyber espionage. This is kind of, I don't know, there's a kind of nice arcade feeling about this. You like seeing all this kind of stuff happen on screen. I think one thing that really distinguishes Oliver Stone as a filmmaker is that he is someone who is capable of showing as much as he is of telling. And that is as true in JFK as it is in Platoon. We have plenty of narrations. We have plenty of kind of didactic messages pummeled upon the audience saying, this is how I feel about this particular war, about this particular military industrial complex. But he has a way with images and with editing of demonstrating, I mean, the opening scene of Platoon is not just Charlie Sheen saying, you know, I wanted to become anonymous by going to Vietnam. It shows the body bags of the grunts that he's replacing, right? So there we have an immediate visual cue of this is what this guy is going to be experiencing in Vietnam. I think that the trouble with Snowden and is a trouble that everyone who sets out to make a biopic, a movie about an historical individual, faces. And that is, how do you combat inevitability? People know what is going to happen. We know where the story ends up. And how do you keep it exciting? How do you keep it fresh? How do you keep it relevant? And I think that this movie is ultimately a hagiography, one that is not a story of a person, but a story of a saint. And that really cripples the filmmaking technique that Stone employs. I found this quite a quite a dull movie to watch, especially as he, you know, towards the end, as Snowden begins to transcend this earthly realm and kind of, you know, be washed out into this blissful, you know, walking off into not, not even the sunset, but just into some, you know, he, he becomes this, this shade, you know, emer- you know, emerging into the level of saints. And I think that, that that hurts the filmmaking when you render a story so simple and you trust the audience so little to understand the themes that you're working with, ultimately you say, this is a great guy, and let me show you all the different ways visually that he is someone worthy of your respect. And I I think it it hurts the filmmaking as much as it does the story. So, Mercy, you know, never does Oliver Stone set out out with a single purpose, right? He's always got, he's always on two tracks. One of them is, yeah, he really wants to send us a message. He really wants to tell us about something that we don't know about or that's worse than we think it is. But he also really wants to make a very entertaining movie. I mean, his aspirations at the level of drama are high. Um, And... Um, in fact, I was reading the lengthy New York Times Magazine piece about the making of this movie, and uh, a lot of the struggle between him and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who plays Edward Snowden, was that, that according to Oliver Stone, anyway, Joseph Gordon-Levitt had an almost documentary approach to trying to incarnate Edward Snowden, and Oliver Stone wanted drama, drama, drama. So, you know, it kind of worked for me and Lucy, the drama part of it, anyway, not for Tom. Um, and then there's the message part about it, like, did we get the right message out of it? I, I don't know. Were you either entertained or made sufficiently paranoid by this movie? So I wasn't entertained, but but first I want to start by saying following Tom's response, I Mm. feel like anything that I'm going to say will just sound like I like it a lot, (laughs) right? (laughs) Um, But I was was entertained. You know, I went to the movies by myself. I brought my uh, notebook and my pen, and I didn't realize how dark it was going to be. That's one thing I'll definitely say. So, I mean, I have notes in front of me, but I Mm -hmm. don't know what most of them say. Um, And... I was entertained by the love story, which I often hate. I hate love interests, you know, strategically placed love interests in movies. Here we have the benefit of it not being strategically placed, but actually being the story. And um, his girlfriend eventually joins him in Moscow, or rather Russia, which I think is, uh, I don't know, a lovely part of the story. Um, I, I'm entertained by a number of things. I I think 
I'm entertained by Joseph Gordon-Levitt's accent. I don't know what that was or like why he, how that sounded like Snowden to him, but go for it, fine. I, I can <laughs> tell you um, that what he did was he took uh, Citizen Four stuff and any other audio that was available to Snowden, and he played it constantly, including while he was asleep. Oh, wow. Um, he just listened constantly to Snowden trying to get that voice. Oh, but wow. it didn't work for you. It didn't work for me. No, it felt weird. It, I mean, and I'm a fan. I am a fan of Joseph Gordon-Levitt, me right? Too. I loved him in Inception and 500 Days of Summer. I've, I literally one day watched 500 Days of Summer all the way through in its entirety and then started it over. Mm-hmm. I didn't have anything to do that day, as you can tell. Um, so I'm a fan, but I didn't really like the way he portrayed Snowden. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that has anything to do with the story itself. I want to go to this love story part of it. Uh, it's Shailene Woodley playing Liz. Lindsay, uh, who is uh, the real life significant other uh, of Edward Snowden. I think Tom's going to be hopeless on this, Lucy. But I, I sort of agree with Mercy. Although one thing that's sort of interesting, once again, there are no spoilers. Please don't worry about spoilers. But one thing that they don't show you is Lindsay's triumphant arrival. In my, they're just like goes up on the screen at right. the end, <laughs> and which made me think that Oliver Stone doesn't think this is a love story. <laughs> although I really thought that, that, that it kind of was narratively. Oh, I, I mean, I would, I, I think I would disagree with the assertion that Oliver Stone doesn't think this is a love story on some level. Um, but it's it's interesting. You know, I did, did I think it was entertaining? Yes. Um, but the love story angle really irked me because I thought it was really, really easy. And I thought Shailene Woodley, who is uh, an outstandingly talented young, uh, young woman and, and actress, um, really gave it everything she had but she was playing uh to a character who was like uh just extremely one-dimensional I, mm. I don't think it was a fleshed out character and it was sort of this character that existed to show audience members how they were being watched by the nsa in in real time and to play off uh ed snowden's uh paranoia in sort of in real time um so i i wasn't crazy about the love story i you know the the fact that she came in the and to moscow and the, and that was kind of a note at the end it it bookended it in i guess a, a neat way and um you know there is of course the the issue of the cutting room floor and probably at some point oliver stone was like well gotta finish this movie <laughs> i bet Lindsay listening to this show in russia thinking wow i'm not one-dimensional I don't think. <laughs> no no i i think she is probably an extremely multi-dimensional right. woman portrayed and, and the other thing i have to say is as someone who um who has seen Citizen Four and, and thinks that Citizen Four um, succeeds in in making one anxious about being watched in a in a way that this movie just mm. doesn't succeed at all and doesn't really try to. Um, if you are going to date Edward Snowden for a number of years, I have to believe that you are an extremely intelligent, interesting, um, profoundly. Um, you know, thoughtful woman who has a lot of backstory and who's taking a lot of that backstory with her wherever she goes. And I just didn't get that in Lindsay. Yeah, some of that's the way that it's written. You know, Tom, one of the questions that I had about all this, by the way, just to make it clear, Citizen Four is the documentary by uh, Laura Poitras yes, uh, about you. Edward Snowden. Uh, it won an Oscar. Um, Laura Poitras is played in this movie by Melissa Leo. Uh, Glenn Greenwald, who's also part of that whole reporting process, is played by Zach Kinto. Kinto? I think it's Kinto. Is that how you say it? Mr. Spock, basically. Um, <laughs> right. And, and uh, apparently the relationship between Oliver Stone and those two journalists was somewhat fractious uh, and, and hard to work out. But, you know, if there's a 
way of talking about one of Oliver Stone's missions, I assume it's that, you know, we have kind of a numbness to this NSA stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we all know that it's true intellectually. We've read, you know, Greenwald's reporting. We've seen Citizen Four, whatever. But I, I don't wake up every morning flipping out about this. Uh, in a way that Oliver Stone maybe wants me to flip out and maybe in a way that I should flip out. And the question is, does he deliver that package? Well, I'm going to respond to that. But first, I want to say, I thought Shailene Woodley was great in this movie. And I really... I like Shailene I, I enjoyed the love story quite a bit. And, you know, we were talking about Reds briefly before yeah. the movie sta- or before the show started. And Dr. Zhivago is another great movie. I mean, mm-hmm. I dig these big, sweeping historical movies that have romances at the center of it that act as counterpoints. The problem mm. with a hagiography is that all of the supporting characters are reduced to uh, functional kind of plot mechanics, as Lucy was saying. This character and everyone around Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Ed Snowden exist only to reveal to him uh, you know, the amorality of this type of surveillance, the message that surveillance is not about combating terrorism, but about propping up the government in which you live. And, and I think that when, when the people around, not just Shailene Whitley, but also the two kind of mentors played by Nicolas Cage and Reese Ifans, when they're so reduced to just plot mechanics, then I think the, the story and the movie really suffers. But does this get me thinking about surveillance? And I think one reason why Citizen Four uh, is so... Um, is so much more effective at being unnerving than Snowden is that Snowden focuses too much on the person. It almost displaces our concern about just the wide swath of surveillance and how it hits every single person. And it focuses on this one kind of heroic character combating it. And that's what, I mean, I, I shared a, uh, this, a link to a, Senate, or a House congressional report uh, advising the president not to pardon Snowden, right? And it, and it did, you know, it, it put all of these personal attacks out there against Snowden. He is a traitor. He's not a whistleblower. He's a criminal. And I think that everyone who has beef with what Snowden does, the more they can put the emphasis on this particular person and less on the wider story that he's trying to bring to audiences' awareness, including Stone. I think he falls for that trap of focusing too much on the per- person. I think it's to the de- detriment of the audience's understanding of of surveillance. Although I sort of feel like, I, I don't know. I mean, I think you're right, basically. I think you're, uh, the, whatever the effects of this movie are, they're kind of short term, you know. But I do feel like, I always feel like The Road Warrior was a great movie because I, I got out of seeing it at the multiplex and I just like drove over parts of the parking lot that I, you know, the, like the little <laughs> things that stick up at the end of the parking space and like went over a curb, you know. Because like I just thought, ah, you know, I'm not going to, I'm just going to just drive the way Mel does. And I walked out of this movie and I was a little jumpy. I was kind of thinking, you know, I mean, as someone who I think suffers from um, a disorder that I'm naming right now, um, adopting cinematic character disorder, um, figure out. (laughs) I love that disorder. (laughs) Right. I I, I suffer from this. When I watch a movie, I'm like, yeah, I'm that character. And suddenly (laughs) I'm in the movie, right? Suddenly I know how, like, kung fu or whatever, right? I can fly or whatever it is. I didn't leave this thinking... I work for the CIA, which I think for me in my life, right, in my work, it's easy to say, yeah, I work for the CIA or or feeling very, um, I'll say, anxious about everyone watching me. I have two cell phones, right? I have three computers thinking, well, wow, all of these electronics are betraying me. I didn't leave the theater feeling that way at you all. You put a little piece of tape over the little webcam nothing, thing, you know? Nothing, nothing. <laughs> this, this is a quote that I love to go back to whenever this is brought up, but the late film critic Roger Ebert described movies as empathy machines, and that's always mm-hmm. what I go in to a movie thinking about, is this movie going to get me to care about the person on screen, but also feel as if I understand where they're coming from and feel as if I am that person. Mm-hmm. And I think 
that this it's again I keep hyping you know harping on that sainthood aspect of the movie but it's difficult to really feel empathy with someone who I'm watching I don't really feel like he's a person I almost feel like he's an ideal of a whistleblower mm. and Citizen Four gives me Snowden and all of his kind of cantankerous and awkward and uh, uncomfortable personhood. Well, I mean, I, we're going to r- wrap this up so we can get to our other three topics. But, I mean, Lucy, in a way, it kind of sounds like he's, you know, because of Oliver Stone's dual mi- mission, at least here, and, and maybe this is a, a consistent problem, he's kind of screwed because, you know, I mean, to the extent that he emphasizes the person, the story of the person, it makes this a story of the person. And I don't think it's quite fair to say that everybody in the movie just exists to kind of shore up that point. I think the Shailene Woodley character of Lindsay is also, you know, the joie de vivre person. There's more to life than these ones and zeros. Take your epilepsy medication and, like, let's have a great life in Hawaii. Kind of, you know, but to the extent that it's about a person, you kind of lose the message. The extent that it's about a message, you lose the drama. So he's always looking for that sweet spot. And I guess, I don't know, I, I guess we're questioning whether he found that anyway. I, I don't think he did. Um, or, or I, I mean, I think if he set out to make a movie championing Ed Snowden, the character Ed Snowden, the person Ed Snowden, that's what he did. Um, you know, you, you kind of get this like Peter Gabriel music coming in at the end and like hammering you as you're walking out of the theater. Um, and, and the whole thing feels like um, it's, it's very much the narrative arc that Oliver Stone wanted when he set out to do this project. And, and, um, I don't know if I feel like that narrative arc is um, a particularly successful one. But I I mean, I I would say if you want to go out on a Saturday night, have a beer, have a glass of wine, have a good time, see this movie. Um, But it's not the kind of movie that's really going to make you think about things that are still going on in this country. Although if you do all that and then go home and have sex, you're definitely going to close your laptop first. (laughs) Um, And so speaking of hammering you with some music, we're going to take a break. We're going to really hammer you with some music, music you've already been hammered by when we come back. Let it all go, set it all free. You let the whole wild world see Exactly what is going on Exactly who's looking on All right. Uh, well, to quote from, uh, I think it's Nick Murray of the New York Times, Leonard Cohen's ballad Hallelujah has become so inescapable that the songwriter once asked for a break from his own track. I think it's a good, I should, I, I think it's a good song, but I can't do Leonard Cohen. I think it's a good song, but too many people sing it, he told The Guardian in 2009, agreeing with a critic for The New York Times who asked for a moratorium on Hallelujah in movies. It's in a lot of movies, not just Shrek, but it's sort of everywhere, too. This is me talking now. Um, and it appears that the producers of Sunday Night's Emmy Awards were unaware of the unofficial band in the In Memoriam. When the In Memoriam segment began, it was accompanied by Tori Kelly's gentle acoustic guitar strumming as she started the first verse. Um, and, and so he kind of sort of brings this uh, all the way around and just tells us about all of the chronicles, all of the uses in all of the TV shows, uh, all of the movies. And it's certainly also one of these cases where if you're on American Idol or X Factor or The Voice and you need a ballad and you can't think of another one, it's one of the ones you do. Um, you know, and, and so I don't know. I mean, Tom, I've been feeling this way. I, reading this, I guess I didn't know that Leonard Cohen himself had, <laughs> had called for a band. So I felt 
uh, uh, I felt so validated by this article that I, I think I'm forcing everybody else to talk about it. But it, there are songs like this, right? That songs that are worthy. This is a worthy song. It's just that something horrible has been done to it. You know, I, I went into this article in this part of the discussion thinking, Hallelujah is a song that I really like. And yes, I appreciate that it has been worn out by like insidious pop culture. But then I listened to it a bunch this morning. And honestly, I'm not sure I like this song. And I'm not even sure if it's if it's because it's overused. I think that, you know, I, I do feel that big emotional moment that this song is played for, right? The vocal acrobatics, uh, the kind of maudlin nature of it. Yeah, I, I respond to that at a visceral level. But I also, you know, listening again, I, I think that it is a surprisingly kind of simple and definitely a kind of overwhelmingly masculine song that I found uh, interesting to listen to this time around. And, and it gets, you know, the, the question that this, movie, that this article really raised for me was what does it mean to cheat at art? Right to to use. I mean, the the guy is saying that this. You know, you need to put a moratorium on using this song because somehow it's not fair. It's too easy to uh, to get an emotional response of whatever you want from the audience. But and there are you know there are plenty of techniques like that in in filmmaking or any other type of art. But uh, I, I guess I'm asking that as much to the other panelists as well. Is, is you what does cheating at art mean to? To you too. It's a great question. Before we get to it, there may be somebody who doesn't even know what song we're talking about. I don't know how that could be possible, but uh, this is actually the track that kind of started uh, the trend. Uh, this is the, the late Jeff Buckley uh, singing his version of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. You don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this The fourth, the fifth The minor fall and the major lift The baffled king composing Hallelujah 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 All right. Presumably your memory is now refreshed. So, um, Mercy, I know you have a lot to say about this. You may or may not want to uh, frame it within uh, Tom's uh, context of cheating at art. But uh, what's your reaction to this whole idea about Hallelujah? I love this song. I love this song in Trek. I love this song in West Wing. I love this. I, any Right. Give me any movie, any time, any, right, any cover. My favorite cover is Rufus Wainwright mm-hmm. or my brother's cover that he put on YouTube, right? Like, I love this song no matter who's singing it or where they're singing it or what they're singing it for. This might be the song I walk down the aisle to. It is misplaced in that context, but I don't care because I love this song. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, well, I mean, and obviously you're not alone. I mean, it wouldn't be used the way that it's used uh, if that were not the case. Are there songs that you would like I also feel like Over the Rainbow which is also a great song but I mean too many people in American Idol and everywhere else who can't think of another song you know are are, are driven to that are there any songs that really sort of bother you that way that have been drained of their essence Killing Me Softly mm. right I, I mean great song right um, my favorite version is Lauren Hills but I don't think I can take it anymore mm. um, Wild Horses 
don't want to hear it anymore. I have a list. Uh... All right. Well, b- b- <laughs> before we get to Lucy, I mean, I would say that Killing Me Softly is an interesting example, uh, the way it's used in About a Boy, Tom, of not cheating at art, right? So this is the song that, you know, this this boy has to sing, feels he has to sing before a school assembly because his mother, who has terrible mental illness, loves this song so much. He goes out. I don't know. Spoiler. Hugh Grant kind of bails him out a little bit. But um, So there's know, certainly, there are certainly contexts in which maybe overused songs can be redeemed or maybe mm-hmm. put to their proper use. But I think that most of the different references that this article made to the use of Hallelujah was at the exact same type of emotional moment or just divorced from any context, just in a singing competition, right? So if you if you know that you want to elicit a, a very specific response, which is kind of weepy reflectiveness or weepy reflection, <laughs> then this is the one you go to. And I think that a, if About a Boy uses this song well, then all the more power to the, you know, the filmmaker who saw its potential to uh, to do something maybe a little bit differently or properly. Mm. But for the most part, this song seems to make it easy right. for ab- abuse. Just to be clear, <laughs> Killing Me Softly is the song that About a Boy oh, yes. uh, uses. But um, so I don't know. It's tied at one and one, Lucy. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agreed with the article. It resonated with me. And I uh, I don't think it's a good song. We sort of also have a moratorium on the song in the New Haven Independent Newsroom. Um, so that that may be part of it. Paul uh, Paul Bass does not uh, appreciate... He's just like, take it outside. Yes. I, take it outside. Actually, quite quite literally, yes. But um, <laughs> but for me, um, the, the song that's sort of on par with uh, Hallelujah in both not being a great song, if you look at the lyrics... Um, and then also being way, way overused is Elton John's Your Song, which I think uh, is in way too many people's uh, sort of popular wheelhouses. And I would also like to hear off the air, off the stage, off reality television, um, in, in all sorts. I, but I, I do think people fall back on Hallelujah because the composition is such that um, it, it does channel or can channel incredible emotion. And Tom, like you said, you know, the, the vocal acrobatics that the song requires or in theory requires um, brings, elicits something immediately from whoever the listener is. And so Mercy, I, you know, I think when you have a reaction to a song like that, it, um, it it's totally personal. And a lot of people across the country have this similar reaction to Hallelujah where they think, oh, my gosh, like every time I hear this song. And, you know, for instance, a lot of people will hear um, See is Breathe Me, which is used at the mm-hmm. end of HBO's Six Feet Under. Mm-hmm. And like to this day, I know people who cry when they hear that song. And I think Hallelujah has a very similar effect. All right. We have to stop there because I'm getting the signal from Jonathan. We won't make it through all of our things. Uh, we'll reignite this conversation during the reception after Mercy's wedding when we've all seen whether or not she actually does. Uh, this is not a schedule event yet. Don't go. It wasn't like you didn't get invited. Um, I hope you're listening, Jesse. All right. So, uh, <laughs> so, but yeah, find out, you know, find out if the band knows it anyway. So um, we're going to switch gears here. We're going to talk about a, a recent appearance by Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton has also appeared uh, on uh, Jimmy Fallon's late night talk show. Uh, but uh, Trump's appearance was notable for this kind of iconic moment where uh, Jimmy Fallon asked first if he could, um, he said, could I muss your hair up and then proceeded to do that. But uh, most of the other questions were light as puffballs. Uh, Donald Trump was not really uh, asked to explain himself, other than perhaps uh, his and Vladimir Putin's uh, mutual affinity for each other. There wasn't really much of any substance there. Uh, This caused Samantha Bee on her show uh, to have words for Jimmy Fallon. 
Sure, he's making life palpably dangerous for Muslims and immigrants, but hey, he's good entertainment. You know, here's a thought. When Holocaust survivors are telling you, hey, this guy gives me deja vu, maybe don't invite him up into your house to play with your adorable children. Have you always see yourself getting into politics? Have you uh, gotten close to getting sick through this whole campaign? Have you ever played the board game Sorry? <laughs> I, I hate to break it to you, but I've done an impression of you once or twice. That's your house? That's where I was born. Any uh, fun memories from this house? Oh, oh sorry, but I'm making you wistful. Yeah, sorry for that, but. Trump can be a total sweetheart with someone who has no reason to be terrified of him. Huh. I noticed there were no cutaway shots to the roots. I wonder why. Network execs, yeah. Network execs and a lot of their audience can ignore how very dangerous Trump is because to them, he isn't. They're not going to be deported. They're not going to live under a president who thinks of them as a collection of sex toys. They're not racist. They just don't mind if other people are, which is just as bad. Just for people who didn't get that joke, The Roots is the house band for Jimmy Fallon uh, on The Tonight Show. They are uh, people of color uh, and might have had a very different reaction to Donald Trump. But this brings up all kinds of interesting questions here, right, including – you know, what can we expect? What can we reasonably expect of Jimmy Fallon? And are there any rules? I don't know. Mercy, uh, usually I may have uh, Lucy sort of make the final rulings about stuff, you know, and I may still. But let's all in our fumbling way before we give it to her, try to figure <laughs> out what, what's the rule book for all this stuff? I mean, I, he's not a journalist in my book, right? Mm-hmm. I think he's an entertainment late night show host, right? What more can you expect from him? I do think that there's something to her point that everyone has this responsibility to not play into him, to not give him airspace. I, though, as a, you know, black woman, have something to lose at that game, right? Uh, I don't think Jimmy Fallon does. And she makes a point about non-racism versus anti-racism, which is I'm not, well, non-racism is I'm not racist, but I don't mind if other people are anti-racist is I'm not, well, I'm not racist and I mind if other people are. You're not going to be racist around me. And I think I mean, to answer your question, what can we expect from him? We can't expect that, Mm -hmm. right? But it's difficult, I think, in a lot of ways without um, various exposures to various cultures, right? It's difficult to expect that most straight white males can. You can expect that from most straight white males, anti-racism. That that takes a different kind of conditioning, I think. So, uh, you know, obviously, Tom, late night television is a big ice cream shop. You can pick the flavor that you like. Um, If you're picking Jimmy Fallon, you've probably already made a decision that – this is like right before you go to bed. You don't want anything upsetting to happen. Um, and and he's not going to let that happen to you. In fact, he's a little bit of that sort of host who insists on keeping the happy chatter going at the dinner party, even when two people are really fighting. So uh, I don't know. I mean, give me your, uh, your take. So I know that we are going to, or at least part of this conversation was around that Ross Douthat piece mm. about uh, what he describes as this daily show diaspora of all these liberal explanatory journalists uh, who with laugh lines, right? And from Samantha Bee to John Oliver to Stephen Colbert, um, that there's some kind of similarity in their outlooks and their approach to covering the news. I completely agree with Mercy. These people aren't journalists. They're late-night commentators. And I think that there are different standards that we hold journalists to than commentators. Now, that said, and this is kind of looping back to our Oliver Stone discussion as well, 
you can identify Samantha Bee or John Oliver as having an explicitly and a specific political point of view. But don't kid yourselves. When Jimmy Fallon lets Donald Trump on his show and musses his hair, that's a political statement. That is a political statement that it is okay to tolerate this person for his goofiness, you know, for his you know, camaraderie on a TV set. And it is okay to, to listen to what he has to say on the presidential campaign trail as well. And I think that you know, this argument by Douthat and for anyone you know, criticizing the kind of late night similar liberal flavor hosts to say that you know, it's an incursion of this political attitude to previously apolitical spheres, that is, that's absolute nonsense because Jimmy Fallon, you know, not just letting Trump on but being casual and fun with him uh, is a political statement and one that I really find abhorrent. Yeah, you know, Lucy, my problem with the Ross Douthat piece is, you know, he is sort of right that there's, you know, well, I mean, actually, he says uh, some of them have better lines than others and some joke more and Hector less. But to flip from Stephen Colbert's winsome liberalism to Seth Meyers' class clown liberalism to Bee's blue stocking feminism to John Oliver's and Trevor Noah's lectures on American benightedness is to enter an echo chamber from which the imagination struggles to escape. I still don't think that's the problem because the, the, Dick Cavett used to have people on who were liberal who were conservative who were horrible in some other way you know and they would they would say things that were disturbing and that would ignite a really interesting conversation now that's obviously not the show that Jimmy Fallon is doing but to we know from Donald Trump's previous behaviors and appearances you have to work to have Donald Trump on for 20 minutes and not have him say something horrible. He wants to say something horrible. Right. And, and so, I mean, the effort being made here, I mean, as Tom is saying, there's maybe an effort that unintentionally normalizes Trump. But he's also working very hard to conceal who Donald Trump really is, which, which Donald Trump never works hard to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I think, you know, we've all, we've all said, or, or Tom and, and Mercy have already said, you know, Fallon isn't a journalist, and so maybe we shouldn't expect journalistic standards of him. But two things. So the media kind of made Trump what he is um, by playing into this buffoonery for a really long time. And he's part of that media. But also the this kind of like game playing back and forth with Trump when he's on your show is tantamount to, you know, lying by omission or, or something like that. And so um, I, I mean, I, I do think that Fallon had more of a responsibility to either have have Trump run his mouth and say something terrible and, you know, boom, this is who I am, um, or to, um, t- to be a little bit more hard-hitting. But I also don't think the stakes are that high for him as a mm-hmm. white dude in this country. You know, he's like, he is not the person who's going to suffer greatly under Donald Trump. It just makes me so uncomfortable to Mm -hmm. know that in a month, uh, Fallon, we're all going to be watching the I Stole My Kids Halloween Candy skits from Jimmy Fallon. And like, we'll have that moment of, oh, remember that? And Mm -hmm. then Donald Trump could possibly possibly be one of those remember that moments on Jimmy Fallon. And that makes me really uncomfortable. All right. We have to move on. Uh, We don't have much time for this at all. This is the topic that Lucy Gilman almost succeeded in murdering in its cradle. (laughs) Uh, That is the Brangel exit, as it's being called. You may have heard about this. Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt having one of the most storied celebrity marriages of our age, if not the most, uh, have decided to call it quits, citing irreconcilable differences. Um, And so... Obviously, this is something that public radio does not really talk about very much, this kind of thing. But we were just sort of wondering, and Tom, I'll have you uh, get things started. Like, is there is there a there there? Is there something actually to say uh, about something like this? It, it actually is a marriage that people, rightly or wrongly, p- place some kind of value on. 
Well, you know, as I, I was a bit skeptical of talking about this topic as well, and many thanks to Jonathan McNichol for sharing the New Yorker's Richard Brody article about it, because if you want to make it NPR appropriate, then share a New Yorker <laughs> article. So, And I thought that that was the most interesting one on this topic for me, and it's approaching, you know, Bradley Pitt, or uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie from the perspective of their work as movie stars, and, you know, how is our relationship with them as a movie star couple indicative of the way that we understand movies uh, as, as an art form? And I think that Richard Brody's spot on when he describes this movement of actorism, again, focusing so much on the people, the celebrities, the faces. Not that this is necessarily new to the history of movies, but it is almost completely shedding any intent that the filmmakers, the directors, the editors were trying to put into the movie and focusing exclusively on the faces that were seen on the screen. I think that Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie and their romance and their breakup and our fascination with it is indicative of that obsession with actors over anyone else who is involved in the filmmaking process now. And that is, again, going back, this is the Papoulian through line of mm. yours. Going back to the, my problems with Snowden, you focus too much on the surface level of what face am I looking at, and you miss almost everything underneath. All right. I could push back against that a little bit, but I think I'll just I want to hear out the whole panel here. Hey, Mercy. Hey, uh, I don't care about this. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and But I don't mind talking about it, but I'm, I'm going to sort of talk about it through the lens of an African-American this week, right? Mm. There are so many other things that we care about, mm. right? Other relationships that would matter more to black America that if they, you know, dissolved than Brangelina, um, namely uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce, Will and Jada, Macaroni and Cheese, Kanye West and Kanye West, right? Like there are so many other relationships that I care about breaking up. Than this one. Um, and if Kanye it, West were to break up with Kanye West, I would be very upset. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. That's, I mean, I, I don't understand. And I sort of, sort of tuned out a little bit. I, I, I wasn't as involved or um, up consumed with all the coverage around this. And I don't get it, to be honest. All right, Lucy, you don't want to talk about this in the first place. I don't know why <laughs> I'm you do. I am... Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, Mercy, your your point of, for instance, Jay-Z and Beyonce, and I even wonder if there was the same, like, national, um, I don't want to say mourning or uproar, but something in between when Lemonade came out, yes. and there was kind of this, whoa, moment. Um, and and if, it, if it was the same thing, if it felt different, um, I mean, for me, I, I think uh, the article in Vox.com said, uh, we are so sad, we being the American public, uh, although not me, um, are, are so sad about Brangelexit, Brangelina, whatever, um, because they are celebrities that we could we could be, we could see being. And I think it's actually that uh, some people are so sad to see this relationship come to an end because that couple in some way approximates like normal human beings within this bigger framework of Hollywood. Um, but it's it's also just like, to me the the divorce um i mean it's it's sad when people get divorced sure mm -hmm. but it's uh it's not ruining my week certainly and a lot of other things are well focusing on movie star pair ups isn't anything new obviously there's the bogey and bacall there's give uh there's uh uh Catherine Hepburn uh and Spencer Tracy um 
I, I do think I, – I don't care either, honestly, I'm be honest <laughs> with you. But, but I think if people do care, it's kind of this idea that like these two people seem like a team. You know, and they had projects that were on, on the screen, but they had the projects that were off the screen. They had all these humanitarian stuff. There's a sort of idea like, wow, that's what like a high-functioning couple maybe even doing something a little bit more important with their celebrity might be. And so, yeah, I mean if people are sad, it's probably like, mm, okay, the, so that model doesn't work. If those two wonderful kids can't make it work, what chance do the rest of us have? But of course, I mean, we everyone you know in their own lives and their own circles has that high functioning couple. They have you know someone who right. is an example of you know people who are together who just uh, derive some kind of synergy and then are selfless in their relationship. I think what makes this relationship different again is celebrity. That is the one factor, and that's the key factor. And how is our relationship with celebrity? How does it distort our perspective on the world? Again, it's focusing on those faces and not the people around us. I can't argue back against that. All right, we've got to take a break. We'll come back after this. Brad and Angelina are breaking up reportedly. I saw it in a magazine in the supermarket, and that's good enough for me. I know that I could have her, but I'm stuck here. Have you tried to book an appointment with a therapist since this whole Brangel exit thing started? You can't get in till November. People are in pain, man. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McJolie and me, Kyone Wolf, with Greg Hill in the intro. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jennifer Aniston. Check out all our past episodes at wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday, we'll scramble to catch up with the weekend's newsiness. And now, back to Colin. All right. We have here in our New Haven headquarters on beautiful Audubon Street in New Haven, uh, Tom Breen uh, from the New Haven Independent uh, and Mercy Alcoa. I don't even have your IDs up in front of me anyway. Well, Mercy Quay and Lucy Gellman, who are both very familiar <laughs> uh, to listeners uh, of The Nose. Uh, this is uh, Tom's first time on The Nose. This is really fun. Ooh. No, yeah, actually, you were on the uh, one we did from the study, right? The Oscars. Yeah, yeah the Oscars yeah. one. Okay, so um, we're, it's time to endorse things. Uh, Lucy, what are you going to endorse? Great. Uh, I have two quick endorsements. The hmm. first one is Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad. It's a relatively new book. I think it came out in June of this year. And it looks at the Underground Railroad but adds magical realism to the text. It's um, it's beautifully written, and I, I can't say enough good things about it. The second is actually an interview between Laura Poitras and uh, Ed Snowden and Brian Lair that happened earlier this year at Radio Love Fest in New York, so March of this year. But then that is on WNYC's website, and um, you can go listen to it, and I think it is really a, a very good reminder of all of the things that Snowden wants you to be paranoid about. All right. That was Lucy Gilman, station manager at WNHH Community Radio in New Haven. See, I looked it up. Tom, what are you going to endorse? I want to recommend a book called The Oliver Stone Experience, which came out in early August and is written by Matt zoller who is the editor and publisher of RogerEbert.com and a film critic of note. Uh, and this is a big, beautiful book in which he interviews uh, Oliver Stone about his entire career, his life, his service in Vietnam, uh, his you know ascendancy as a screenwriter of movies like Scarface and Midnight Express, and then becoming this incredible direct you know an auteur who grappled with real history, not just the history of movies in the 1980s. And if I can single out any one moment, it, maybe this should be my endorsement. It is Oliver Stone's selection of Tom Cruise to play the lead character in Born of the Fourth of July, which is just three years after he plays Top, you know, the lead character in Top Gun, in which he is the image of the young kind of Reaganite, eager to go off into the military and kill some bad guys. 
American. Here in Born on the Fourth of July, he plays almost the exact same character, except instead of killing bad guys, he kills women and children and then becomes uh, permanently paralyzed. All right, Mercy, we dragged Hammer and Tong some endorsements out of you before you we went on the air. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I still have to apologize because I'm still underprepared. Um, maybe uh, Helen Wheels, right? I think that's I, – I enjoyed watching it. It's a uh, show – I think it's actually now on either Netflix or Hulu or both. Um, it is a show about Manifest Destiny um, and moving the railroads out to the West. Um and uh, given the week we've had, I'm just going to ant- uh, endorse uh, anti-racism. Mm. There you go. <laughs> all right. um, so uh, I'll quickly endorse, uh, first of all, read, read, go see, if you're going to go see Snowden afterwards, wait until afterwards, read the piece in the New York Times Sunday Magazine. It's about three or four weeks ago about the making of Snowden. It is fascinating. So many things about it are kind of hilarious. I won't even try to summarize them right now. And um, I, I know I've endorsed it before, but I'll endorse it again. One of the great uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt performances ever is in a somewhat obscure movie called Brick. It is a um, noir, a sort of California noir movie about high school kids, but it takes that whole idea very, very seriously. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt is this kind of disheveled high school Philip Marlowe who's always getting the stuffing beating, not beaten out of him or beating the stuffing out of somebody else. And more the former than the latter. Uh, he takes his lumps. It, it's just a great movie. I've watched it. I can't I'm be embarrassed to tell you how many times I have watched it. Brick is the name of that movie. And now I'm going to break my rule about endorsements because my, I always ask people, you know, endorse something that people can then see or access. And I'm now going to do the opposite of that. Um, a lot of people can probably figure out when I'm talking uh, that uh, I live with somebody. Uh, I never tell you her name and I'm not going to tell you her name now, but it is her birthday. Uh, and uh, I will say that the people who do know uh, who I live with and who I spend my days and nights with, uh, when they look at us from the outside – um, I don't know if we're really like the Brangelina of West Hartford. I kind of doubt that. Uh, but looking at us from the outside, they, they'll often say to me, you know, basically, you know, boy, you won the Irish sweepstakes. You know, well, that's how it looks from the outside. Well, I've got news for you from the inside. That is exactly how it is. I did win the Irish sweepstakes. And so happy birthday, Khaleesi. Uh, I, I absolutely feel like uh, I'm very, very lucky uh, to to be in this relationship and to celebrate your birthday with you. All right. So I'll never do a sentimental endorsement like that again. Um, Thanks very much to uh, Tom Breen uh, from the New Haven Independent, Lucy Gelman from WNHH in, uh, in New Haven, where she's the station manager, Mercy Quay, director of communications for the New Haven Public Schools and organizer of the Narrative Project. We'll be back on Monday with a scramble. Thanks to Jonathan McPants. That's right. I see you on the radio. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, baby. I'll meet you down on a side Across from St. Francis, past the conservatory, up the street from the seminary. You know, it's a very, very, very cool place to hang out. Yeah. <laughs> it's cozy, like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we'll be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter of about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.
It turns out the real reason behind the Angelina Jolie-Brad Pitt divorce is he said he kind of gets why people would vote for Trump.